Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst for MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. On today's show, we are going to talk about a little bit of breaking news about the minor leagues. We're going to get into Trevor's story trade ideas, overreact to spring training numbers, and talk about Jock Peterson trying to do something that has just about never been done before. We're also going to be joined by national NBA insider Tom Haberstroh to talk about his history in baseball and his family's contribution to Lou Gehrig Dyke, which will be celebrated across MLB every June 2nd, starting this year. But first, by the time you listen to this podcast, you will have heard about some news. There are going to be some rule changes in the minor leagues, and we have them here to go through. And I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by most of these. Before we detail what they are, I kind of want to say one thing I really, really like. Well, two things, right? I like that we're trying stuff. I think trying stuff is good. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but I like that we're trying stuff. The second thing I like is that as you'll see, as we go through each of these, you'll see there is one particular experiment that's happening at each level of the minor leagues. And I think that's great. I think in the Atlantic League a couple years ago, they tried doing too many things at once and it was sort of hard to tell what had what effect. And I think just like one thing per this league here, I think that's cool. I think that's going to help a lot. And I would imagine you are in favor of just trying things and seeing if they work or not. No question. I think this is this is great to see. I'm so encouraged by it. Um, I think that like for a long time, baseball was criticized um, for being stuck in the past. So I really appreciate the league trying to make these efforts to move forward and say, like, hey, what are some ways we can improve the on-field product? And if you'll see in the, in the press release that went out, there are three people who are quoted in the press release. Um, Michael Hill, MLB Senior Vice President of On-Field Operations, former general manager of the Miami Marlins. Um Raul Labanez, MLB Senior Vice President of On-Field Operations, who, you know, longtime major leaguer, um, very well respected, um, played for many, many teams. Um, and Theo Epstein, consultant to MLB, former President of Baseball Operations for the Cubs and Red Sox, one of the most acclaimed uh, front office people in baseball history. And I think that's significant because they were br- these folks were kind of brought in with the understanding that, hey, there are some concerns about the product on the field. How can we make it better? What can we do? And so there's obviously some systematic like evaluation going on. And as, as Mike said, I think it's, it's notable that they're trying separate things at each level to try and isolate the effects of each of these changes. And I think that's really smart. I think it's great that they have people with real sway in the industry um, leading the way on these rules. Because like if, 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 Theo, if Theo Epstein and Michael Hill and Raul Obanias are behind it, these are people who can get buy-in from people at all levels of baseball. Yeah, each of those three names you mentioned have all joined MLB just in the last couple of months. So it's pretty clear what they've been doing uh, in their in their first few weeks and months on the job. But, you know, from the press release, it says here, consistent with the preferences of our fans, the rule changes being tested are designed to increase action on the base paths. Cool. Create more balls in play. Sure. Improve the pace and lengths of games. Yes. And reduce player injuries, of course. So let's go through what each of these are. At AAA, there will be larger bases. Now, I would guess, because I know this applies to me, if you were to ask a thousand baseball fans, what is the size of a base? Maybe three people could tell you what it was. The answer is 15 inches. I couldn't have told you that. Matt, I assume you could not have guessed that either. I did not know. No, it's going to be 18 inches now, right? 15 inches square to 18 inches square. And as written here, uh, they expect the shorter distances between bases created by increased size to have a modest impact on the success rate of stolen base attempts and the frequency with which a batter or runner reaches base on ground balls and bunt attempts. Uh, I'm, I agree with with one of those a lot. Obviously, if you don't have to run as far, you might be more incentivized to try to steal a base. And stolen bases are exciting and fun, so that's cool. I do wonder about the other part because, like, I don't know, can't the first baseman stretch off the base a little bit further and there's less distance for a shortstop to go? Like, I, I have no preconceived notions about how this will work out because I can't say I've ever seen this before. Like, I'm excited to see what happens and and if three inches matters. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it's 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 it seems in, as much as anything, it's about injuries, right? There's more space for there's 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 more space that you're less likely for a runner to step on the first baseman's ankle or when they slide into a base. Hopefully not first base um, for this reason, but when they do, there's 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 more room and there's less likelihood that um, someone's hand will get stepped on or it's it's this is like a, a such a small thing, but it like actually could have like a real impact, which is cool. 
Yeah, I'm interested to see. It's not detailed here, but when they tried something similar in the Atlantic League a couple of years ago, they actually changed uh, just like the, the material that they used for the surface of the base because uh, we've had a couple of guys getting hurt, like slipping on wet bases. So I don't know if that's going to happen here, but if part of this is about player safety, that would seem to make sense. So that's AAA. AAA will see larger bases. AA, now this is going to be the controversial one, I think. Defensive positioning. So what they're going to do is the fielding team must have four players on the infield. And on the infield means both feet completely on the dirt, which now as I'm reading that, I'm wondering if there are any old school minor league fields that just have like the dirt cutouts, you know, like you used to have in, in the sky dome back in the day. I don't know the answer to this. But I, I'm I don't think so. Cause that was, that was, that was Astro, that was AstroTurf. I don't think any of these parks have AstroTurf. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Brooklyn, right? MCU park where the cyclones play. That's not real grass. That's like, I a, guess that's a, true, but they still have the, uh, they still have the, the do, they, do they have real dirt or is it just the, the AstroTurf, I, I, the, the field turf that looks like that's brown. So it looks no, like. No, I, I think the warning track is painted brown like that. I think the dirt is real, but I, I honestly can't remember. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I think that's going to be really interesting. So what I really, what I like about this one is the way that it's worded because my, my objection to banning the shift has always been people seem to think that will cause more balls to be put in play. And I, I really strongly disagree with that, but I like the way this is worded here in the press release because it specifically says these restrictions on defensive positioning are intended to increase the batting average on balls in play. Basically, if a ball is put in play, will there be fewer you know, outs that would have been hits for 90 years? I, I think there's maybe less of that than people think because when the sh- while the shift does take away, there's also times where it gives back. So this is, I don't know, one or two extra hits a game, maybe, which is fine. I, I, I think I think that part is is fine if that is the intended effect and not the expectation that it will cut down strikeouts because I, I don't think it would. Well, there's two two things to clarify. This is not actually this is not being the shift. This is just saying you have to have both feet on the dirt at all times. It does say that in the second half of the season they may try with quote unquote banning the shift, having X, two people on each side of second base. But to start the season, it's just keeping two feet on the infield and the expectation that this will have the similar intended effect. And to your point, Mike, I kind of agree, but I think almost think that doesn't matter because there's been so much talk of like, well, they should, they should do this. They should ban the shift. They should force this. And it's like, well, why don't we just try and see what happens? Like maybe it has no effect, but at least we're going to try and see, like, we won't know, like we won't know unless we give it a try to see what kind of, what kind of effect it has. So, you know, so I think that's the idea that it's possible. This has a, this, this hurts the, you know, maybe, maybe this has, unseen, you know, unintended consequences that leads to things that we're like, you know, we don't want to do this. Yeah. But, well, he, you know, you know, it's funny. worth trying. I'm, yeah, I agree. I, I, it's funny as I'm thinking about this and I'm saying I, it's great that there's one change per level. And it, it is. I like that a lot. And now I'm just thinking about the guy who goes from like rookie ball up through every level and has to have like a slightly different version of baseball. <laughs> there, there's, each time. There's, a, there, there's a story for next year. Let's, uh, yeah. let's, let's put that one away. And to, well, actually, we haven't gotten to low A yet. In low A, they are actually. Well, let's, let's not skip yeah, we'll high. Get there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So high A is going to be the step off rule, which is about uh, pitchers holding base runners on. And and the way this is going to work, pitchers are required to disengage the rubber prior to throwing any base. And if you don't do it right, it's a balk. And this kind of was already uh, implemented in the Atlantic League in 2019. And as the release says here, it resulted in a significant increase in stolen base attempts and an improved success rate. I guess this kind of goes back to like, you know, the, the individual question of, do you think stolen bases are cool and do you want to see more of them? I would guess most baseball fans would say yes. Um, and I think if they are a higher likelihood of success, then teams might be more likely to you know, allow their players to try it. And if this is going to make it harder, as another rule we'll get to in a second, Will, to hold runners on base, then you know, the leads would probably be larger. The bases are obviously larger, like not at the same level, clearly. But you can see you can see what the intention is here. Exactly. And I think to me, honestly, my biggest beef, I've, I've sort of really disliked the leeway that lefties have on throws to first base for years. Um, I think it sort of like violates the spirit of the balk rule, the way that, you know, it sort of was popularized for, by Andy Pettit, although many others have done it, where basically you lift your, the lefty will lift their um, right knee and basically pause for a second and then sort of step kind of towards home plate, but more towards the first base dugout in a way that, I think is deceiving the runner and making a motion towards first base and towards home plate. Um, and in my mind violates the balk rule, but has been allowed. Um, so the fact that, in fact, if you, if you look up the Matt Myers balk rule on Twitter and on Google, you can see that in ESPN, the magazine many years ago, when we did an issue dedicated to 
changing the rules in sports, I propose the, it is actually in there as the Matt Myers balk rule, using Andy Pettit as the test case of how they can change the balk rule. Um, this gets rid of that. This, you know, this forces the left-handed pitcher to step off the rubber, and it removes that that you know that that move from the game. And I'm all for that. I, so I absolutely Googled this while you were talking and I found it. And the, the very first line of that sentence is of this, of this entry is who is Matt Myers? You ask. <laughs> so <laughs> He's a baseball editor at the mag and he's had it up to here with the way box are called. Okay. I'm on board with that. Now, low A is a little different because they're splitting it. Uh, some, a couple of rules among different leagues. So uh, there is going to be across all low A leagues a limit on pickoffs, right? Pitchers will be limited to a total of two step-offs or pickoffs per plate appearance, obviously, while there's a runner on base. And I think this is kind of, um, it's interesting to think about as I'm reading it. A pitcher could attempt additional pickoffs in the same plate appearance, but if the runner is safe, the result is a balk. So I guess that's like a a piece of strategy where it's like, you just let the guy go because you've exhausted your pickoffs. Or if you try, you better get him because otherwise you're giving him the base, (laughs) which is interesting. (laughs) <laughs> this is definitely one where it's like I don't really know how it's going to play out. You know, we, yeah. we, you know, like this could be the year we see. Like, you know, remember a few years ago uh, when Billy Hamilton stole 100 bases in the minors? It got people really excited because you know we hadn't seen a hundred stolen base season in the majors since I guess like Vince Coleman in 1987, I think, and we hadn't really even seen like an 80 stolen base season since. Um, I don't even know the last day, but it might be, you know, it might be Tim Raines. I don't, I'm not even sure. But the point is like, so when Hamilton got a hundred and however many a few years ago, that was like really exciting. And I think granted it's going to be a shorter, shorter minor league season this year. So we may not get there, but we could see some huge stolen base numbers in the low minors this year as a result of this rule. All right. The other two changes are in just the low a Southeast league. Uh, they're going to be doing the, the robot umpire, the automatic ball strike system. I think that's, not super surprising. That's happened in the AFL and the Atlantic League um, before. And so that'll be kind of fun to see how that works out. And in the low A West League, there is going to be a little more enforcement of a pitch timer. It doesn't exactly say what the time limit is going to be, but there's going to be an on-field timer, one in the outfield and two behind home plate that will be implemented to enforce time limits between delivery of pitches, inning breaks, pitching changes. I am hugely in favor of that. It's hard to evaluate it without knowing like what the rule is, what the actual time is. Um, but I, I, I don't think I've heard anybody who's not actually a pitcher say, I don't want a pitch clock like that. That one seems to be the go-to for me. For sure. I'm that's, and it's, it, it'll be, and this is, you know, as I kind of alluded to before the low A leagues where we're seeing a combination, a combination of rules. So like you, they're, they're both getting the, um, the, uh, the rule on uh, pickoff limitations and then they're also getting one other rule. So I think the low A West to me is really interesting where you get the, the limits on pickoffs and the pitch clock. And that'll be interesting to see if you, I could easily see how that could really affect um, pace of play. You might get some really, you know, you might end up seeing like a lot more like kind of two hour games. Um, so it'll be, I'm very curious about how that plays out and what, what the experience is like watching one of those games live. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to see the results of this. And I, I appreciate that innovative things are being tried. I'm certain nobody on Twitter will have any opinions about any of these rules. Okay, we're going to move on to our three batter minimum. Our first topic today is going to be about Trevor Story. And I'm sorry to say, Rockies fans, that it's going to be the main story for Colorado this year. Every other week, I think we're going to get a Trevor Story trade rumor because he's one of the best shortstops in baseball. He is a free agent at the end of the year, and the Rockies are not expected to be that competitive. And as we get towards the deadline, I think this is going to happen a lot. But I was thinking about this the other day, and I was trying to figure out, you know, do a little like future casting here. Where where would he end up just in the sense that like all the really good teams, almost all of them, have outstanding shortstops. And obviously an injury could happen. You never know, right? But setting that issue aside, so I looked at all the projected wins above replacement totals for shortstops uh, looking over at fan graphs. And I kind of highlighted here our our teams that have 20% or better playoff odds and 14 of the 15 teams that have the best shortstops have 20% or better playoff odds. And most of the teams that do not have a good shortstop don't really have like a great shot or or are less likely to be trading for a guy like Trevor Story. And so as I kind of mentally went down the list, it's like, okay, well, Padres have to tease. The Dodgers have Seager. The Mets have Lindor on and on and on and on. And I kind of came up with, you know, if they're in contention, there's two, I think, 
really good fits. And the perfect one, the perfect one for me, the Milwaukee Brewers, right? Like I'm huge on their pitching staff. Their infield cannot really hit at all. Like the Reds, if they're contending, sure. Like would the Yankees move Torres to second base and, you know, play LeMahieu everywhere? Maybe, but I'm just kind of looking ahead, Matt, and I'm wondering like, where is the market going to be? Like, are there going to be a ton of teams in on him in July? I mean, I think there will be, but it's a tricky one, right? Because the teams are not necessarily going to want to give up a lot for, uh, you know, a quote unquote rental. Um, and if, um, you know, they, and because they, they also know they won't be able to offer, give him a qualifying offer as a free agent and reap any draft pick compensation. Whereas right now, that's like the, the, the calculation the Rockies have to make. Like, is this whatever we can get? Is this going to be worth more than the draft pick compensation we would yeah. get? If he leaves as a free agent, of course, this, you if know, that's a thing. If, assumes, assuming that, that that's the same in the next collective bargaining agreement, which will be renegotiated this offseason. So all those, those those unknowns make it really, really tricky. Not to mention that, like, there's any number of teams if they fall out, and I don't expect this to happen, but, like, you know, if the Astros fall out, like, does Carlos Correa become trade fodder? Because he is also a free agent next year. So that could also change the the calculus of like what you could get if there are two you know superstar potential shortstops on on the trade market so it's they're not really in a great spot in terms of like leverage for what they can get for for story in the, during the middle of the year no i mean it's like nobody was happy with the arenado return right and obviously there were some complications with that with the, the opt outs and his contract and all that but if you look at you know the lindor return and lindor is as good or better than story is it was okay you know, the, the Mookie Betts return for one year was pretty good, but Story's not Mookie Betts and it wouldn't be for a full year. So now if you get to July and you trade Story for, you know, I don't know, the Manny Machado package, which what do they get from the Dodgers? Like six guys, none of whom have really done much yet. Um, that's, I don't know, not what you want, I guess is what I would say. I don't want to be like a downer here. I love Trevor Story. I think he's great. I'm just kind of like, I'm wondering how this market's going to turn out. And maybe it won't matter. You know, maybe we'll get to July and it's like, oh, uh, Trey Turner got hurt, you know, Bobashek got hurt or something like that. So there will be opportunities. But it was just something I was thinking about because that's what I do when I'm walking my daughter to school is think about who might want to trade for Trevor Story. Um, let's move on to number two. And I'm going to do this one almost in real time. I wanted to kind of overreact to some spring training numbers because I think a lot of people don't know this. This year, uh, the, the StatCast technology has been installed in a bunch of Florida spring training homes, right? There's the one in Arizona, Salt River Field, where the Rockies and Diamondbacks share their home. And that's been up for a few years. But now in uh, Florida, a bunch of the ballparks have this set up so you can kind of see what's happening and who's throwing what. And again, it's spring training. You don't want to freak out, except uh, while we were just talking, I was watching the Pirates and Orioles game, and I was really hoping we would see something from Felix Hernandez. And again, I don't want to overreact to like one game, but average of 85 miles an hour and maxing out at 87, I don't think that's going to get it done. Is that is he going to make this team? Like I want an Orioles rotation to have Matt Harvey, John Means, Felix Hernandez, and knuckleballer Mickey Janis. I don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a bummer. The uh, the end of like the Felix era has been you know one of the kind of more. It's just. I don't want to like. I feel like sad as an overstatement, but it's a little sad because at his peak, he was so electric, and maybe my, you know, my for a period was my favorite pitcher to watch in the majors. And the last couple of years in Seattle just were he just didn't really have it anymore, and um, we're kind of seeing that now. You know, I guess I could see him getting by with some craftiness and being having like some success here or there, but it's hard to imagine he's going to be um, anything close to you know a, an effective pitcher over the course of you know twenty five starts. He did an interview a couple weeks ago with, I can't even remember who, but he said, one of the reasons I want to come back and pitch is because I want to make the Hall of Fame. And he's not going to. I don't think he's got any chance anymore, but I appreciated his openness. You don't hear a lot of guys like saying like, no, dude, I want to get into Cooperstown. Like, that's what I'm here for. Most guys are like, well, if it happens, you know, I'm just going to work hard. And he's like, no, I want it. And I I respected that openness. Um, Tell me truthfully, did you know 48 hours ago who Josh Mears was? Uh, I did not. No, I did not either. And and why would you? Josh Mears is a Padres prospect. He was drafted in the second round of the 2019 draft out of Federal Way High School and obviously didn't play last year because there was no minor leagues. But in 2019, he hit 253, 354, 440 at, in rookie league ball. And now you're wondering, why on earth are we talking about Josh Mears? 
that's because Josh Mears hit a home run the other night. And again, there is only one ballpark in Arizona that's wired up for StatCast, and he happened to be there. And that ball was hit at 117.3 miles an hour. That is a big boy shot. That is not a number you can like luck into or fake. Over the last four seasons, that combined regular season and post, uh, only 22 hitters have done it even once. Only Judge and Stanton have done it more than three times. Here's the percentage of all balls that were hit 117 miles an hour. 0.00019%. I don't know if he can make contact. I don't know if he can field. I don't know if a double-A breaking ball will ruin him. Uh, But if you do that just once, now I'm paying attention to Josh Mears. Can I can I give you an, a, my my favorite anonymous prospect who's like doing interesting stuff in terms of Statcast this spring? Is is it Chris Gittens? No, have you heard of Joey Murray? Uh this is the Blue Jays guy, right? Yes, this is the Blue Jay guy. So MLB.com Sam Dykstra did a piece looking looking at the prospects who've got interesting Statcast data in spring training, and he pointed out Joey Murray, who's in the the the, the bottom half of the Blue Jays top thirty prospects, twenty four year old right hander, but his Fastball has averaged a spin rate of 2,700 RPM, um, which is really good. Like 2,500 is kind of like, you know, considered elite. And his curve has the highest uh, spin rate among all spring training pitchers that have been tracked at 3,100 RPM. So he's he's like, he's basically like elite spin in both. both. And it's really interesting too, because if you go and read a scouting report, it says his effectiveness is rooted in his invisible fastball. He throws his heater with below average velocity, usually working at 88 to 92, and sometimes works in the lower side of that velocity band. But the pitch plays up because he's incredibly deceptive, employing long arm action on the backside and an explosive delivery that enables him to induce a ton of wisps inside the zone. Also, apparently, he has a lot of high spin rate, so it all yes. this is this is an interesting guy. All right, I like I like that. And, and again, there is a huge bias here in the sense that not every park has this. Totally. So, it's possible some dude for the Reds or, you know, the Dodgers or whatever team just hasn't been in front of the, the cameras yet. And we don't want to ignore them. We just don't have any numbers on them. Did you notice that Joey Gallo, this is like the peak Joey Gallo right here. Five homers, one double, zero singles. I, I think that's the most Joey Gallo line you can get. That is what the man, it's like a single. What's the point? He is up there to murder a baseball with extreme intensity. He didn't have a great partial year last year. The Rangers aren't terribly interesting, but he was really good the year before, before he got hurt. I am not out on Joey Gallo. Like, I still think he can be a borderline MVP guy and possibly a really fascinating trade candidate. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm all in. Uh, he's, he's maybe one of some, like, in terms of a, a must watch at bats, like, if I know Joey, ba- Joey Gallo is coming up, I'm turning, to, I'm t- turning on the Rangers game. Uh, Bobby Dalbeck of the Red Sox has three home runs, three tracked batted balls, uh, 103, 106, 108 miles an hour. Strikes out too much. Did I see that our friend David Adler compared him to like an off-brand Aaron Judge the other day? I'm not sure I totally buy it, but I see where he's coming from. Like that's that's real power. And if you can hit 30 homers, then no one's going to care about the strikeouts. Yeah, he's inter- I mean, he's an interesting guy, especially for a Red Sox team that's as we've talked about, it's kind of in that sort of like tweener range and Dollbox, one of those guys who's been on the periphery of the co- he's like been in the prospect conversation for a long time. Um, so there's opportunity for him to kind of really emerge and become a power threat in that lineup. So, you know, I'm curious to see what he does. And finally, because we all know that spring training records in the first week of March matter greatly, the White Sox are one and six, and the Royals are eight and three, the American League Central is decided. It's over. Uh, let's stay in the Central, the, the National League Central, and finish off our three better minimum. So Jock Peterson is trying to do something that has rarely ever been done before. And I, I dug into some numbers for this because I thought it was pretty interesting. So Peterson, for a couple of years with the Dodgers, uh, was you know a pretty good and useful player. He was a center fielder at first. He's moved to the corner. He pounds right-handed hitting, just like absolutely crushes it. Over his career, he's got a 849 OPS against righty pitching like he's great against lefties not so great a 576 ops plus he has a complete inability to hit lefties andrew simon for mlb.com wrote about this over the winter and he said over the last 60 years peterson basically has like the seventh largest split between like production against lefty pitching and righty pitching uh again in decades and one of the reasons he said he signed with the Cubs is because the Dodgers were never going to let him face lefty pitching. And he said, well, the Cubs are going to let me try to play every day. This is actually a quote. He said, he, he, I don't feel like I'm respected as an everyday player. 
Okay. So he wants to face lefties. I think that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he, turned, he said he turned down multi-year offers this winter because he wasn't guaranteed to play every day. He signed for one year at $7 million with the Cubs. Now, I respect that he wants to try because he hasn't really been given the opportunity. I don't think he can actually do it, but this made me start thinking. I wanted to know, uh, has anyone done this? Has anyone like started their career like Jock Peterson and then faced lefties and actually produced? And... It's a short list. So I went back to 1969 and I found Jock Peterson type players. So through age 28, at least 2,500 total plate appearances and lefties who have faced lefties no more than 30% of their time. So Peterson's an 85-15 split. I went guys who no more than 30% split. So that's 45 players, right? What happened to those 45 players after age 28? 38 of them had Like no meaningful change. They faced lefties about the same. They performed about the same. Four of them, including Brad Miller and Pedro Alvarez, uh, their teams realized they could not hit lefties and they faced lefties even less. Uh, And one of them, Roland Office, which is a great name from the 70s Braves, just basically had his career end. So I found two success stories with a big, big ish. So Mel Hall, 1980s outfielder for Cleveland and for the Yankees, uh, through age 28, you know, he had a 582 OPS against lefties. After that, he played more against them. And he upped his OPS by like 100 points. 678 still not very good, but it's an improvement. So you could look to that. And then there's Gregory Polanco, who had a 629 OPS through age 28. And since age 28, has a 900 OPS plus, but in 47 plate appearances. And that's it. And I, I appreciate that Peterson wants to try. But unless you think that Mel Hall example is a great one, I don't think this is going to work. I think what's going to happen is instead of his usual like 115 OPS plus, he's going to have like a 98 and people are going to think, oh, he, he had a bad year. But it's going to be all those lefty plate appearances where he's hitting a buck 50 like kind of coming in. Yeah, and I'm worried. I mean, I, you know, I think it's going to be an inter- interesting managerial challenge, right? Because while well, I'm sure the Cubs meant it when they said you're going to play every day and they will give him every chance to play every day, you know, in April and into May. But like if come May 15th, come Memorial Day, he's still hitting the way he has against lefties the last few years, like he's not going to be playing every day. Right. So well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. I'm, I'm wondering though, like, you know, I guess I don't have the Cubs roster in front of me. Who's the best option? Do you play Peter uh, Bryant and left, you know, and put somebody else at third base? I guess I don't really know. Um, but I, I cannot imagine they give him like an entire season here if it's not working out. All right, that's the end of our three batter minimum. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back with our guest, Tom Haberstrow, National NBA Insider. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We are really pleased to be joined by Tom Haberstrow, national NBA insider, host of the Haberstrow podcast, contributor to True Hoop. And you might be wondering to yourself, wait a minute, I thought this was a baseball podcast. It very much is. But Tom has a couple of interesting baseball things we're going to get into. He's got an early history as a baseball writer and a little bit of a personal connection to some news that happened in Major League Baseball recently. Uh, As of this year, every June 2nd will be Lou Gehrig Day. 
Teams will wear a jersey patch and wristbands with the four ALS logo, number four being Lou Gehrig's jersey number. And it's really about raising awareness uh, and money and, and anything you can do to help with the battle against ALS. So Lou Gehrig will be the third player with a day in his honor, Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente. And much of the credit for this goes to a group called the Lou Gehrig Day Committee, which Tom Haberstow, hello, thank you for joining us. Uh, you have a personal connection to this, despite this not being the, the sport that you focus on. Uh, you helped and, and your family helped kind of push this to the forefront, right? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. First of all, it's it's a pleasure to talk baseball again. I, I broke into this business uh, in 2008, uh, doing covering baseball for ESPN and helping out Mark Simon, who's like my mentor in this business. He was uh, the Baseball Tonight researcher and brought me in to, to ESPN on an interview and um, the rest is history. So my my gateway into this industry is through baseball. And um, I could never have imagined when I did the Ice Bucket Challenge in 2014, how my life would change after that. My mother was diagnosed with ALS in 2017. And, you know, we all, I think a lot of us, you guys might have partaken in, in the Ice Bucket Challenge. Most people didn't even know it was for ALS. They just thought it was a really cool cause and it went viral. And, um, and of course I did it in 2014 and my mother was diagnosed a few years after that. And you know, there, we joined a committee at IMALS, which was a, a startup that basically came together looking to bring the community together in ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, to start um, efforts to raise awareness and bring people together to get you know change, to turn this 100% fatal disease into something that wasn't a death sentence. And for my mother, she just said, hey, we want you to, um, we, she wanted our family to come together and raise awareness and do something to change the world. And so we started the ALS pepper challenge and raised over $600,000 just by eating peppers and uh, asking people to, to uh, donate and nominate three others. And then from that, there is a Lou Gehrig Day committee that was born out of a need for, hey, why isn't there a Major League Baseball Lou Gehrig Day? It just makes all the sense in the world. Why isn't that exist already? And through a two-year effort, we we got it done and got all 30 teams to sign up. And we couldn't be more excited that June 2nd forever is going to be known as Lou Gehrig Day, raising awareness for ALS. Now, Tom, uh, you know, for, for the listeners out there, Tom and I worked together briefly at ESPN, so we go back a ways. And I actually found out about Lou Gehrig's disease. I was told about Lou, Lou Gehrig Day internally, and then I read a story by Jeff Passan in which he talked about your family's efforts. And that's when I first learned about how your family and this, this the Lou Gehrig Day committee was instrumental in making this a reality. When did you find out um, that this was actually happening and kind of what was your first reaction? Oh, my. I mean – we found out a little bit before everyone else did. Um, we found out in October that this was going to happen. Um, sadly, this group that we put together, um, it started a couple of years ago. This group we, we put together was initially seven people, grew to 27 people. Um, a lot of our members in this committee were uh, people with ALS. And sadly, seven of the, uh, or six of the 27 people on the committee have passed away due to ALS in that short time span. Um, and one of the people who had ALS, who was the main driver of the enthusiasm to get this done, Brian Wayne Gallantine, he, uh, as we know him is, is B Wayne. He was a songwriter in Nashville who just loved baseball and wanted Lou Gehrig day to happen. He texted my brother in June of 2019, like, why isn't there a Lou Gehrig day in baseball? And, you know, the World Series happened in October of 2020, and he unfortunately perished due to ALS complications to ALS a day after we found out that all 30 teams had signed on to the Lou Gehrig Day committee, uh, to, to the Lou Gehrig Day idea. So we had spent two years grassroots trying to build this thing from the ground up, getting team after team. We stalled out at about seven uh, Major League Baseball teams had signed on and we just thought, you know, this might not work out. We we need to get all 30 teams on board before we bring this to the commissioner's office. And on October 20th, 
we actually got all 30 teams signed on because a few of the presidents in baseball who had direct ties to ALS had been impacted by ALS and their friends and family network wrote all of the presidents in Major League Baseball and said, hey, what do you guys think? Should we, uh, I think we should really do this Lou Gehrig day. And Randy Levine, the president of the New York Yankees, was the first person to respond and say, yes, let's do it. And once the Yankees signed on to Lou Gehrig day, I mean, there was no turning back at that point. And uh, in October, we got all 30 teams. And then uh, shortly thereafter that, we found out that, um, that Major League Baseball was working to finalize it. And the commissioner, Rob Manfred, had said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and the response has been unbelievable. My mom, when she found out, uh, when she saw Jeff Passan's um, article, she, she, uh, she, she sent me an email, my brother's an email uh, with her eyes. She typed with her eyes because ALS is a motoneuron disease that, that paralyzes you slowly. She can no longer speak. She can no longer use her hands. So she uses her eyes to type out any sort of messages that she wants to write in email or text. And she sent out a text to me and my brother saying, uh, congrats, you did it. I'm so proud. And uh, that was just a couple of weeks ago. And we can't wait for June 2nd, man. That's a great story. I do. I have another question, but just quickly, where can people go if they want to help, if they want to donate, contribute with this? Yeah, so... Um, Adam Wilson, who's one of the main um, co-chairs of this committee, along with my brother Chuck Haberstroh, um, Adam Wilson has ALS, but he has been able to put together a website, LouGehrigDay.com, or sorry, LG4Day.com, um, and the Twitter account, LG4Day. Go follow that Twitter account. Um, go to LG4Day.com to contribute and tell us your story. We want to hear people who have ALS stories in their family, in their network um, to raise awareness for ALS. And, and Lou Gehrig, I mean, the guy, the guy was known for his um, endurance and his invincibility. And if, they, if this disease can take down Lou Gehrig, who was known as the Iron Horse, who started uh, the streak of 2,000, over 2,000 games, consecutive games played, like, come on, um, this is baseball disease, but more importantly, I think this is baseball's cure. I think baseball has the power to raise awareness that leads to cures, leads to research, um, because right now there are no effective treatments. There are no, uh, there are no cures for ALS. And so we're hoping baseball through Lou Gehrig Day and the committee of Lou Gehrig Day doc, or LG4Day.com, uh, we can actually make change. And I, I, I can't be more excited for all the people in the world with ALS and their families who are stricken with this horrible disease that now we have some hope. And thanks to baseball, every June 2nd, we'll have a national uh, embrace of Lou Gehrig and the cause of ALS. Yeah, I think you're right that this is a, a disease that is definitely associated with baseball and not just because of Lou Gehrig, obviously, uh, but because one of the most prominent public facing people out there, you know, aside from yourself and, and your group is John Shambi, who, you know, is a friend of ours and is obviously the voice of the Cubs now. And this is a, a cause he's been passionate about for some time. So I'm actually wearing Boog's hat, his 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 fundraising. Uh, <laughs> I, I have one, too. I wear it all the time. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, I'm wearing it right now because I was I was kind of hoping you guys were going to do a video version of this pod because Boog and I talk all the time and he, he that's my guy and uh, yeah I'm we're so we're so grateful and lucky and fortunate to have an advocate like Boog um, yes you know he's it's just he's it's, it's so good phenomenal uh, before we get into some baseball and basketball stats questions I, I did want to ask real quick so you you know you've done the ALS pepper challenge right? Where you challenge people to uh, eat a hot pepper. And I watched one of the videos this morning and it was Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal. And it was wonderful because they were very <laughs> uncomfortable. So really a twofold question. Where'd you come up with the pepper idea? And what, I don't know, what's like the hottest, worst pepper experience you've had yet? Oh man. So when I, um, when my mother got diagnosed, like I said, she wanted to change the world and she wanted to do something that could uh, provide hope for people. And she wanted to start like a movement. So my brothers and my sister and I, we kind of put our heads together. And I, my favorite show on, on YouTube is Hot Ones uh, with Sean Evans. And um, it's a show about a guy who's interviewing celebrities while eating increasingly hot chicken wings. And it was, it's an amazing thing. It's so much fun to watch. I don't know why, but it's really fun to watch humans suffer through really hot food. 
And so I just decided, well, the ice bucket challenge was with shockingly cold things. What if we did something that was shockingly hot? And uh, so I just thought, hey, what if we ate a pepper on camera and then challenged three other people to raise awareness? And so it inevitably snaked its way over to Charles Barkley and and Shaquille O'Neal and Kelly Clarkson and Garth Brooks and Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer um, and Ben Stiller and Jimmy Kimmel. It was just like a dream come true to see all these people, um, you know, rally behind this cause. And so I've eaten like probably 10 habaneros and I did one last week and it doesn't get easier. I will tell you now, a habanero, which is about 40 times hotter than jalapeno, it stays about that hot. It doesn't get any easier uh, if you, the more you uh, habaneros you eat. If you think a jalapeno is hot, like a habanero is just on another planet. <laughs> See, now I just want to watch a reel of of everybody doing this because it sounds incredibly uncomfortable. So the website there, um, as, as Tom said, lg4day.com. And I, I'm sure you'll read a lot more about that as June 2nd approaches. Okay, Tom, you focus obviously on NBA um, from uh, often an analytical perspective, but you did kind of get a bit of a start in baseball. Uh, as I was, I was joking before we get on the air here, I Googled and like 10 years ago, you were a guest on the Fangraphs podcast with Carson Sestouli, which I thought was great. And I listened to a bit of it. And you mentioned uh, learning a lot of things just by like following Tom Tango, who's like now one of our closest colleagues. So it's kind of cool that that's sort of how you started. And when Matt sent me some of your first articles, um, so this would be like, what, 2009, 2010, it's, it is exactly the kind of stuff that like some of the people who are working for teams or are very prominent in the industry were writing like at that time, you know, like, and you obviously went on a different path, but how did you kind of like start approaching baseball, you know, really before a lot of this stuff was in the mainstream and getting into the, the stats part of it there? Well, I grew up a Red Sox fan in Yankee country. Um, that'll harden you as a, as a sports fan. So I, I, my dad grew up in Boston, outside of Boston and raised his kids in Connecticut, uh, in Westport, Connecticut, which is Yankees country. And so I would listen to WFAN, listen to Michael K, listen to Mike Francesa, uh, Chris Russo, Mad Dog. We, we would listen to them talk about how good Derek Jeter was as a, as a fielder. And all the metrics I saw were like, he's a horrible defender. He has no range whatsoever. And the reason why he has a high fielding percentage is because he can't get to any balls. And so if he has no range left or right, and he just like fields the ball that's in front of him, then of course he's going to look like he is, he's a great fielder because of his field uh, fielding percentage. So I, I think I started reading FiroJoeMorgan.com and Michael Schur and Alan Yang, like all these writers were just brilliant at, encapsulating how kind of old school thinking was poisoning the discourse in baseball and how we were stuck in like the 19th century and how we evaluated baseball players. And so I kind of watching the Yes Network and uh, listening to Yankees fans (laughs) talk about Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams and Tino Martinez, like, I was like, man, this is all a bunch of BS. Like they're not that good. And so I started writing and started looking at into sabermetrics as a way to kind of uh, apply my thinking in a productive manner. Um, and so I started a, a blog and reading Tom Tango in the Hardball Times, uh, fan graphs. And, uh, you know, my first article I ever wrote in the magazine was actually about baseball, how momentum is a myth in baseball. And um, I just loved it. But the problem was there was just such a long line in sabermetrics to like really make a living doing this. And I saw it in basketball, I was like, there's no line. So there's basically John Hollinger and Kevin Pelton and that was it. So I just said, all right, there's a giant line over here. I'm going to go like walk over here. To, I love basketball, but baseball was my favorite sport. I'm going to go over to basketball and um, the rest is history. I've been covering the league for about a decade now. And uh, I love baseball. It's so much easier to analyze because it is it is an individual sport masking rate, masquerading as a team sport. Whereas basketball, there's so many different variables um, and it's such a dynamic sport and fluid sport that it's hard to get those discrete moments that you have in baseball. Um, so I, um, I, I loved writing about baseball and reading Bill James and reading Tom Tango. And a lot of the things that we saw in Sabermetrics a decade ago are starting to happen in in, base, in basketball, in the NBA, because a lot of the same people that were graduating from Ivy League schools and writing about the game, or whether it's Theo Epstein, like the Theo Epstein of, of 
the NBA is Daryl Morey, and there are more of those coming down the pipeline. Now, Tom, your career has obviously sort of gone parallel with the growth of analytics in both sports. And in some ways, it seems like basketball has become as analytically driven, analytically driven, if not more so than baseball. What are some things that you've noticed have sort of like, whether it's concepts or specific stats or methods that you've seen that have made their way from baseball analytics to NBA and perhaps vice versa? Yeah. So I think expected uh, value is like a huge thing in Tom Tango and like run run expectations, uh, outs and people on base, like that whole matrix. I remember reading it in Tom Tango and realizing like, this is like earth shattering stuff. The idea that a bunt bunting over a player is actually like a negative value in terms of your run expectancy. That was like shocking to me back then. And now the same sort of expected value charts are happening in basketball and have been happening for the last few years in point expected point values from different part, parts of the floor. So Kirk Goldsberry does an amazing job of doing these heat maps of what is the expected value of a 20-foot jumper versus a 25-foot jumper. And by virtue of having beyond being beyond the three-point line, you're starting to see teams take a lot more three-pointers because of those the, the math. The math suggests that a 40, uh, sorry, a 16 foot jumper from Kevin Durant, even though he's amazing at it, you probably better off taking a step back and getting behind the three point line, because not only are you getting more of a, you know, 50% more points, but also maybe the offensive rebound numbers are actually in your favor better than say a mid range jumper. Um, and also you might get fouled more on three point shots rather than mid range jumpers. And so, you're seeing that heat map that you used to see in baseball, um, not just with the pitches and the hit zones, but also in the expected value of certain situations, I think has really transformed basketball. So even in the last six years, teams have gone from 24 three-point attempts to, t- to 34 three-point attempts a game. And a lot of that is just born out of um, – point expectancy. And that stuff, man, Tom Tango was writing about for years, a decade, decades ago, but before uh, basketball really started looking at it. So to me, a lot of that is just kind of quantifying common sense, right? Like it, it makes sense to me that a, a layup is a much higher probability shot than a shot that's like right in front of the three point line, but they're worth the same amount of points, you know, so take a step back for a potential higher value or kind of go in for a higher likelihood of making the shot. And that seems to be what's happening. And I'm curious about how that has been taken from a a fan and entertainment point of view, like do people kind of miss the days where there were more, you know, pick and rolls and layups, because that's kind of like an ongoing conversation in baseball now, like as teams have gotten smarter, uh, is it as much fun? Like that's something we're all sort of kind of coming to grips with. Like what's the basketball version of that? Oh, yeah. So like uh, the three true outcomes in baseball, uh, walks, strikes, strikeouts and homers. I think you're seeing it similarly in basketball where uh, it seems like it's either a three pointer, a free throw or a dunk. Right. It's like every time down the floor, those three things, one of those three things is bound to happen. And I talked about this with Boog the other day, actually, Boog Shambi, because um, he's one of the few people who does basketball and baseball. And he covers college hoops, calls college hoops games. So I talked about him with, I talked about this subject with him is uh, the home run in basketball is obviously a three point shot. And a lot more teams are looking are trying to swing for the fences in basketball. But the thing that isn't happening as much is the mid-range jumper. It's not the layup. The layup and the dunk are still happening at a high rate. It's just those mid-range jumpers that you imagine, oh, Michael Jordan with the fadeaway jumper. Like those shots are not happening nearly as much. Um, and so it's not so much that getting to, into the paint and finishing at the rim is gone. What we're losing is that dead zone of the 15 footer. Like when was the last time you watched an NBA game and you saw a guy taking a 15 foot jumper on the baseline? Like it just doesn't happen anymore. And so that stuff, because it's not a very profitable shot that you're much better off trying to get into the paint or standing behind the three point line in the corner, that's a much smarter shot and leads to more wins than say a 15 foot jumper. So 
the the worry now in basketball is that it's becoming too homogenous that it's you're you're hunting for too many three-pointers and dunks and layups and free throws that you're losing some of that variety and that spice of you know getting a guy on the block and do and doing a whole bunch of moves like Kobe Bryant and taking that mid-range jumper but i I don't know if that's a better product. Like, I don't think that's a better product than the three-point shot, which like the whole crowd goes nuts when it goes in. I think people love three-pointers. Um, what they don't love is like a bunch of free throws, a bunch of fouls, and a bunch of guys standing around, which is also, I think, what baseball is facing right now, which is the ball's just never in play or very rarely in play. And so some of the cool things that I remember growing up watching, Orlando Cabrera, Nomar, or Pokey Reese, we were talking about earlier, Mike, like Watching those guys make plays in the field was so much fun. Dustin Pedroia, again, another guy who's like tiny. And if I could watch just a hundred plays with Dustin Pedroia doing cool stuff at, at second base, like I would watch that all day. What I don't want to watch is him standing around. And too often, I think in basketball, there's a lot of standing around in the corners. And I think in baseball too, it's it. There's not a, as much action as there was when I was watching. Uh, you know, when in my heyday of baseball, like a decade ago. All right, Tom, last question before we let you go. Um, back when we worked together at ESPN, I think your big project that kind of put you on the map in the NBA world, if I recall correctly, was a big study you did about the NBA draft, sort of looking at the value of each pick and what it means and looking at the most successful picks in history, the biggest whiffs, et cetera. And then we actually started a baseball version of it that, I, as it turns out, I don't think ever got published. So it got me thinking, like, is there any dream project you have, whether it's in the the baseball world or the basketball world that you would want to do or that you wish you'd like to see someone else do that, 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 that is still out there, like some sort of research that you really want to see the results of. Why aren't there two sports stars anymore? Okay. But like Bo Jackson, <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> Danny Ainge. Um, who else? So this is Bo Jackson, Danny Ainge, Deion well, Sanders, Deion Sanders, Ryan Hunter. Yeah. Like we don't see that anymore. I guess Kyler Murray could have been it, right? Yeah, well, yeah, Kyler Murray would be a good right. example. Um, but I just think, is, is it because the sports have become so specialized and such year-round sports that you don't have it anymore? Because, you know, it'd be – like I just saw Nate Robinson on um, on Untold Stories with, with Master Tisfatsi, and, and I was like, man, Nate Robinson was like an all – like he was an amazing football player and basketball player. But wouldn't it be cool to see them do both? And I guess I guess Tim Tebow is another example of someone who's done the cross sport thing. But um, I'd love to see more athletes in baseball. Uh, and I wonder if the reason why you don't see um, as many cross sport players is because just the, the the games are just so much harder now. It's so much harder for like. Uh, a high school baseball player who decided to go to the NBA, it's so much harder to keep up with like a 103 mile an hour fastball now, right? Like the game's just gotten so much harder in baseball. I think that's right. And um, as much as I would like to see that, I think everybody, everybody's so specialized that it's hard enough to do any of this if it's your entire focus. And so to see someone trying to split it seems, I don't know, I'd like to see it, but I just have a hard time seeing teams allowing it, which I guess is the problem. Tom Haberstrow, thanks so much for joining us. Please check out the Lou Gehrig Day site at lg4day.com. Check out the Haber Show on uh, anywhere you get podcasts. And Tom also contributes to True Hoop. Tom, thanks so much for coming to hang out with us. Thanks for having me. And I just one last thing before we go. I think Michael Jordan hitting like 215 and a, a few dingers is one of the greatest accomplishments in sports. <laughs> the fact that he just did this, woke up one day and decided I'm going to hit over 200 in, in professional baseball is so cool. I cannot possibly argue that. It is immensely uh, impressive. Tom, thanks so much. You got it, guys. Matt and I will be right back to finish off the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you. 
based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Our thanks to Tom Habershow. We're going to finish off our show, as we usually do, with a, a pair of players we're very excited to see in 2021. And then our purpose pitch, mine. And if you know this name, I appreciate you because you follow baseball very closely. Alex Vessia, left-handed pitcher who turns 25 in April, a 17th round pick by the Marlins in 2018 from Cal State. He got into five games for the Marlins last year. Seven walks, 10 runs, four and a third innings. Not what you want. 91.7 mile an hour fastball. I'm really burying the lead here because all of those things sound bad. He was traded to the Dodgers in February for Dylan Floro. who's like a decently useful middle reliever. And if you look a little closer at Vesia, you know, you sort of, I think the Dodgers and a couple other teams, it's like if they're trading for a guy, you wonder what they see. And it's not hard to see what they see with Vesia. In 2019, he had 100 strikeouts in 66 and two-thirds innings in the minors. And you're saying, wait a minute, this guy throws 91. What is happening here? If you were to look on Baseball Savant, which is our StatCast uh, warehouse, and you were to look in 2020 at the four-seam fastball like rise leaderboards, who gets the most of that high-spin rise that everybody wants? Well, Trevor Bauer is number one. James Karinczak is number two. Walker Bueller, number three. William Hendricks, number four. These are names you want. These are fastballs you want. That's because Alex Vesia didn't qualify. If you were to lower the minimum to only 90 thrown, he is number one. He has that invisible. And what I really liked is after his first bullpen this year, Juan Toribio, who is now our Dodgers.com beat writer. Last year, he was our Tampa Bay beat writer. And he tweeted at me and he said, hey, this guy kind of reminds me of Colin Poche. And I'm like, in, super in, really in. I Man, I hope he makes this team. The Dodgers have shed some lefties. Over the winter, I don't know if he'll if he'll be there, but I want him to be there because I want to watch this. My guy's kind of on the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum, a lot more high profile, and that's Ian Anderson, the Braves right-hander. Um, for the same reasons that I think I, I mentioned, uh, Randy Rosarena in this in this uh, segment a couple weeks ago. Like, I'm just curious, right? He was so good down the stretch and so good in the postseason. I kind of want to see if it's for real. Um, you know, he had six starts in the regular season at the end of last year. Uh, Ian Anderson, that is. And he gave up one barrel, which we, we in 81 batted balls, one barrel and one home run overall. Um, and then he didn't give up a single home run in the postseason either. So this guy basically really, and that was in four starts. So he was really limiting hard contact, striking out, you know, 12, 12 per nine or so across both regular season and postseason. And he also just the, the prototype of a pitcher that I really like, the like, the power righty who throws in the mid to high nineties, but also with like not like with like a real changeup, not like one of these like power changeups. We really get that like nice like you know seven to ten mile per hour difference in the pitches, and I just really enjoy watching that type of pitcher work. Um, so I'm kind of curious just to see if he can do it over um, a full season. I mean, he was the number three overall pick in the draft in 2016, so there's obviously some pedigree there, and there's reason to believe that like. This is a capital G guy, um, but it was such a small sample last year and down the stretch and in the postseason. I want to see if it's for real. Ian Anderson, the pride of upstate New York. Um, if you combine his regular season and postseason from last year, he had a 158 ERA. I like him. I don't like him quite that much. I don't think he's going to be that. We are going to finish off with our purpose pitch, and I will, will apologize to Matt because he's already heard me yell about this like three times, but it hasn't made it into the show yet. My purpose pitch is to you, the baseball fan. Uh, when we have the opportunity to showcase bright young superstars, we should be happy about it. I'm talking about how Juan Soto was on the spring training broadcast in the first inning of Mets Nationals last week. And everyone seemed to lose their mind that the focus was on talking to Juan Soto and not necessarily a spring training game. Now, I get it. If you're a Mets fan, you wanted to watch David Peterson pitch, fine, whatever. But the complaint we hear in baseball all the time is you're not pushing the superstars enough. You're not marketing them enough. They're not as big and well-known. And when you get a charming, engaging guy who is, you know, Ted Williams, we've called him Ted Williams before, and you get him on for a half inning during a spring training game, I can't tell you how many people I saw complain about this. And it's like, you you can't win. We should have Juan Soto literally everywhere at all times, but especially during a spring training game. And that is my complaint. Here, here. I'm with you. Um, my rant is about major league managers. Um, 
please, when talking about pitcher injuries, stop treating us like we're idiots. Like <laughs> it's just you know, every every time a pitcher gets hurt, it's like, oh, it's not, it's not, oh, shoulder, yeah, it's not. We're not too concerned. Um, it's something you know, like it'll be fine. And it's like it doesn't matter what you say. He's either going to be hurt or he's not. You know, like the other day, um, Carlos Carrasco was you know was shut down for having a sore elbow. And Mets manager Luis Rojas is like, oh, it's nothing too concerning. Like, come on. He's a pitcher. It's an elbow. Like, there's always cause for concern. We're hopeful it's not too bad, but like, we'll obviously just have to wait and see. It just, I'm just, this might be years of following the Mets, but all managers do this. Like, they're always like, with pitcher, if it's a pitcher and it's an arm, it's concerning to some degree. It's bad. <laughs> like, sometimes, sometimes it's not season ending. Sometimes it's not even like, you know, Sometimes it is just miss a couple weeks, but like no matter what, until you're out of the woods, you got to be worried. Uh, sort of reminds me of what happens in hockey where a guy could like shatter both his legs and they'll say, it's a lower body injury. <laughs> He'll be back soon. Uh, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Our thanks to our guest, Tom Habershow. Don't miss an episode of Ballpark Dimensions by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week. 